If we may open our Bibles on page 1120. So our readings our reading will be from Romans chapter 5. I preach series through Romans in our church, and it has taken me um, a third year to reach this place. I will be much shorter today, because the text will be shorter. So the reading will be from verse 12 to the end of the chapter. Yet our focus will be on the verses 20 to 21. This is rather a difficult passage, so bear with me and bear with Apostle Paul. Romans 5, from verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, And so death spread to all men, because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come, that is Jesus Christ. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as in the rain, so that as sin reigned in death, Grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. May the Lord bless this reading of his word, and may we receive his word not as the word of man, but as the, Lord, as the word of our Lord Jesus Christ. There was a time when my child told me that if he wouldn't tell me what to do, 
I would have done it. But now I don't want to do it. These words hurt me as a parent, yet they reminded me of the effect that the law of God has on the heart of a sinner. The law is not morally responsible for disobedience of a sinner, just like I, just like I could not be responsible for the disobedience of my child when I told the child what had to be done. Actually, my child did what had to be done, although she didn't have the desire to do that. The law is not bad. There's no problem with the law, Paul is arguing. There's no problem at all. The law is holy. The commandment of God is holy and righteous and good. Romans 7, 12. In a sense, the law declares by giving us his commandments who God is and what God demands of us. So the problem of disobedience of sinners lies with humans lies with those who are dead in their sins as soon as sinners or a sinner hear what is right and what is proper as soon as they do that they begin to resist such external authority disobedience and more sin is a Reaction, we could say natural reaction, natural reaction against the law from a sinful heart. And that reaction doesn't mean that the law misfired or that the law is good for nothing. What's going on? God declares His holy and good will, and people react with disobedience. In verse 20, we can see that, paradoxically, one of the purposes of the law was not stemming out of sin from the world, but the sins increase. Wow! Is that what the law was purposed to do? Truly? I will not elaborate on this uh, too much. Um, on this uh, sin increase function of the law, but it is enough to say that the law acts as a big demolition machine, like a bulldozer. God uses the law like a massive weapon to blow the dam of human pride. The law is used like a demolition team that raises an old building to the ground. The building that is no good for the architect. Our self-righteousness is destined to die under heavy blows of the law. It may sound strange, but through the increase of sin, God breaks the ground for the construction of the new building that is built by his grace. Paul observes the world around him as full of sin. Yet his heart doesn't lose peace or comfort in God. He understands the situation through the eyes of God. Where sin greatly increased, the abundance of grace was manifested, he says. 
We shall take a look today at the abundant reign of grace in the life of those who are saved. We shall consider first that grace is an earned privilege. Second, grace is more abundant. Grace is more powerful than all our sins and all our guilt. And thirdly, to who belongs such abundant grace? So grace is an earned privilege. It is correct to think that God is full of grace and mercy. Some people say it is divine to forgive. And we as Christians, we so used to think that God is full of grace and mercy that often we get trapped in the wrong thinking if we remove Christ from the greater picture of the grace of God. Let us not forget that Joseph's family, in the story of Joseph in the book of Genesis, his father Jacob, his brothers with their families were saved from the starvation in Canaan. Not because Egypt had grain and pastures for their animals, but because the Pharaoh loved highly valued and glorified Joseph. If it were not for Joseph, if it were not for his special relationship with the Pharaoh of, of Egypt, Jacob and his children would not find grace and mercy in Egypt, would they? So as we read the Bible, we realize that the grace that is given to us was earned. It was earned by the, by the act of perfect obedience of Jesus Christ, even to the death on the cross. And we can see in verses 15, 16, 17, 18, and 19, which repeatedly speak about that fact, when next time you're going to come to God, Seeking his forgiveness, seeking cleansing from your sin. Remember that the grace, forgiveness, restoration will be given to you exclusively and only because the one to who you entrusted your salvation earned this grace and God's favor for you. The grace of God is given to you through Christ and only because of him. Not only your eternal, but also your daily forgiveness was purchased and paid for. The smile of God as of a father. Your acceptance, despite your repeating sins, was earned. If Christ had not paid for your sins, if you had not accepted by faith what he's done for you on your behalf, God would surely demand from you the full payment. Our text beautifully unpacks the enigmatic words of John in John's Gospel 1.16. From his fullness, from the fullness of Christ, we have received grace upon grace. This abundance of grace has one single reason. And it is not you may sound shocking to you. But the reason of this abundant grace is not you. Don't try to dig deep. Don't try to find in yourself an explanation as to why God is so full of grace and mercy towards you. He doesn't have to be such for you, does he? 
without Christ's obedience, without his sacrifice, you are abhorrent. You are repulsive in God's holy eyes. Even if you are born of God, born again, your heart is still lazy. Your heart is still slow to practice righteousness. And you are more ready to follow your sinful desires and the holy commandments of God. And promptings of the Holy Spirit. But God still gives you his attention. He still spends his resources on you. Only because he has special relationship with his beloved son. God loves you. And shows you his favor. Just like the Pharaoh loved and showed his favor to Joseph's family. He loved them because he first loved and glorified Joseph. If it were not for Joseph, the Pharaoh would not pay a slightest regard for Jacob and his sons. Having accepted Christ by faith as our own Savior, we become a part of his family. And he, just like Joseph, invites us, his brothers and sisters, to the place of rich blessing and favor of the great King of Heaven. Secondly, grace is more abundant, more powerful than all your sins, past, present, and future, and all your guilt. We sin before God every day, and sin always brings with itself condemnation of the law. Hearts touched by God, the Holy Spirit, know and feel the condemnation of the law. It is the job of the law not to forgive sin, but to condemn it. The law demands justice. The law of God demands full restitution for breaking the commandment of God. And it does so because the law primarily manifests the perfect righteousness and holiness of God. We may find out elsewhere in Romans that Christians are not under the law but under grace. And our text is the first stepping stone where Paul begins to show and explain what it really means to be not under the law, but under grace. To be under grace does not mean that Christians are free to break the law. Remember that. But rather that we are free from the condemning power of the law. Those who are under grace are justified by God. God makes them perfectly just, morally squeaky clean, white as snow, despite the sin they committed. The word of God, portraying to us the crucified Christ, again and again announces and confirms to the repentant sinner that he or she is righteous and perfect in God's eyes. The act of our justification was done objectively once. That's true when we come to faith, faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That was done once and for all. But it also done subjectively when we are forgiven and cleansed on a daily basis. We again and again declared just and righteous before God when in repentance we daily seek his forgiveness and pardon. 
our sins and failings surely disappoint us. And if we are serious about our obedience to God, we may even start feeling or thinking, I can't be serious repenting of the same sin over and over again. When you yet again commit sin that you abhor and hate, after a period of, of, of success or control over it, you may begin to doubt in the God's grace and, and in his favor towards you. Yet our text clearly indicates that God meets sins in your life with the abundance of his grace. Does he not? I know that I'm walking a fine line making such a statement that it is easy to slip and lose balance thinking along these lines, yet we should carefully consider Paul's teaching on this topic. When and where sin attacks God's children. The grace of God is there. The grace of God is there already in greater degree or in abundance to forgive, to cover the abhorrence and disfigurement of sin, to cleanse our conscience and to heal our heart. Sin already lost its battle in the life of those who are saved, so it does not matter how many reinforcements sin would send into your life. The grace of God is greater and more abundant for the sin-tormented soul. If you accepted Christ's sacrifice as a sufficient payment for your guilt and for your transgressions, then God gives you much more grace than the law may produce guilt condemning you. You're not under the law to be condemned forever, but under the grace that justifies and makes you perfect in God's eyes. This is why the grace of God is more powerful and greater than the law. We know that even a single sin in the hands of the law is immediately turned into eternal condemnation. Yet, the increase of sin and of guilt is met with a mighty torrent of grace, which is like a powerful flood that washes them all away and yet again makes the child of God righteous if only he or she sincerely seeks forgiveness from God. Sin cannot win this war against God's grace. Because the Savior is its source. And this Savior has such fullness of glory and perfection and righteousness that he would not, would not stop offering such grace to you. It is enough to conclude at this point that the grace of God is able to wash away and to cover more sins and guilt than you can produce in 10,000 or 1 million earthly years of life. Or we can put it this way. It is not possible to outsin God's grace so to make it ineffective for our salvation. What application we can take from this part? There's a great encouragement and consolation for those who do not know what to do with the nagging guilt that sin brings with itself. If we shall not learn what to do or how to handle guilt, and condemnation of the law. We will not learn how to fight against sin and its power in our life. We must hate sin in our life. That's true. Sin is our enemy because 
it always takes something very valu valuable from you. And it does not truly give you anything good. Sin takes your peace, your joy, your hope, purity of your heart. Sin destroys families. Sin destroys relationships, lives, careers. It robs you of your gifts and makes you unfruitful for God. And makes you too weak to produce any fruit for God's glory. The guilt and condemnation of the law may lock you in a dark place under the burden of the law, under the burden of guilt. The longer you stay there, the longer you remain in that place, the less you will believe in grace that is able to bring you forgiveness and cleansing. Remember that grace abundantly reigns, not through your own performance or your own righteousness, which is like a moth-beaten old cardigan. But its reign comes through the perfect righteousness of Christ. Such grace is given to a sinner again and again. So the sinner may be brought to his and her final desti destination where won't be any struggle against sin. In your dark and joyless place of condemnation of the law, you have an access to, to the grace of God if only you accept Christ's sacrifice as a sufficient payment for your guilt and your transgressions. This access is not barred for you, regardless what your feelings may tell you. Get up. Go into the presence of God. Again, with the words of repentance, and he will surely accept you. Because of your Savior, who is your adopted brother. This is he who inherited the kingdom of God and kingdoms of the world. And this is exclusively because of him that the Heavenly Father, Heavenly Pharaoh, will grant you audience and will pardon you. Your sins will not outweigh God's grace regardless how many times you're going to sleep and sin. Regardless how many times you will come to God asking for forgiveness. His grace will always reign. It will be always abundantly offered to you and available to you. It, it always will be able to cover your sin. To cleanse you and to make you holy. Grace upon grace. Like a ocean waves rolling in to take away guilt and condemnation of the law. Finally, to who belongs such grace? If some of you are shocked, disappointed, or feel uneasy with what you heard today, as if you were offered a way to sin, then I would take that as an indication that my interpretation and application of this text is not far from Paul's own goal. Uh, why it is so? Paul saw what sort of reaction this teaching may produce. If it is misunderstood, and to preempt questions from his audience, he takes such possible misunderstanding into his own lips in chapter 6. He begins chapter 6, what shall we say then? He's speaking on behalf of those people. Are we continue in sin that grace may abound? Verse 1. In other words, are you serious, Paul? Have, you, have we understood you correctly? 
the more sin there is in our life, the more grace will be shown to us. Then we should do more sinning in order to see more grace. Is that right? Is that what you're saying? Paul's answer is explosive. It's very emotional. In Greek, there are only two words, meginoito. That is, by no means. These two Greek words, or three English words, um, they're heavy loaded with emotions. If you want, uh, behind them, there are some more words. There's a lengthy reprimand that you can put behind those three words, which may sound like this. Are you in your right mind? Did you not hear what I was saying? Have you lost the plot? Don't you see the forest for the trees? Are you so dumb and slow not to follow what I was saying? He could have said, but he was polite. The only route we can take from this explosive response of Paul, that such abundant grace of God belongs only to those whose heart is changed. To those who are born of God or born from above, surely the grace of God is offered to the whole world, dying in sin. Yet its abundance is efficacy, its power to heal, to forgive, to cleanse. Its privilege belongs to those who are changed by the gospel and not to those who are not obedient to it. The saved, those who are saved are those whose heart was changed. So sin is not natural to them anymore. They cannot live in comfort with sin. Sin is like a foreign body in their life which causes inflammation, pain, agony, torments to their souls. Remnants of sin and sinful desires still linger in the life of those who are saved. But their new nature painfully reacts towards sin and does not find how it can coexist with it. Those who are born of God, are not, they're not only sensitive to what the Lord tells them, but they also drop their defenses against it. So they don't defend their wrongdoings. Even before other people, they don't do that. They know full well that they are guilty. They feel bitterness. They feel pain from sin. And they know that they are transgressors, guilty criminals before God. More readily, they will lament their sin and carry the burden of condemnation rather than will be spending time in defending their reputation. The abundant grace of God belongs exclusively to such people who accepted Christ's sacrifice as the sufficient payment for their guilt and sin. If your sin does not make you nauseous, even to a degree, if you know that what you do is wrong, and you continue doing so while defending your reputation, if you cushion yourself against condemnation of the law, against blows of the law, then I'm, I'm afraid such grace doesn't belong to you. You cannot claim that is, it is yours. You're lost to God. And you will never see the beauty of, of his grace and of the gospel of Jesus Christ 
while you remain protected from the condemnation of the law. Come to God. Humble yourself and ask God to show you how sinful you are in his own eyes. Ask God that his, that his holy law may come upon you in all its force and to show you how pitiful, how hopeless you are so you may see that you must be saved. And as we close, the glorious purpose of the abundant grace of God. God in his wisdom purposed for the first people to become disobedient. So the sin entered the world, as we read. And with sin came death that spread to all people. Then God gave the law. And sin increased. All this had to happen according to God's plan. So his grace could be glorified. And with it, God himself. The continuous work of grace in the life of those who are saved. Grace upon grace. Grace upon grace. Wave upon wave. Leads those who are saved to eternal life. Yet it is not the final goal. Our eternal life is not its final goal of this grace. God the Father is concerned that his son may be glorified and exalted. So he centered and conditions our eternal life, our final victory and our triumph on Jesus. It is abundance of his grace that leads millions of believers day by day to their coveted goal. This is how the Father glorifies his Son. By making him the door of our salvation and the source of of the abundant grace for us. By his perfect obedience, he earned for us a free access into this grace. He received an inheritance from the Father, and like Joseph, accepted and showed favor to Jacob and his family, saving them from death in Canaan. So does he for us. To him may be the glory forever. And never. Amen. May the Lord bless our hearts uh, to, to think about um, the abundant reign of grace and what the Lord has done through his Son, Jesus Christ, in our life. Uh, we shall sing our final um, hymn, which is Amazing Grace. Uh, 772.